Hey everyone, welcome to the Inspire to Fire podcast. My name is Chris, I'm your host. And today we have Jeremy from at Personal Finance Club. We connected on Instagram not too long ago and I'm super excited to have him on the show. What I'm excited about is to have him share his story about how he started his own business and ended up selling it for multiple millions of dollars. It's really interesting the choices he made when starting his business and the investing choices he continues to make today now that he's financially independent. So I'm excited to share this with you guys. So without further ado, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, I, I like that I have you here because you've reached financial independence. I like to have a variety of guests, some who have and some who haven't, uh, or are beginning or are on the journey. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you became financially independent? Sure. Uh, it's not the typical fire story, I don't think, of where someone just lives on 20% of their income and invests for 12 years or whatever. Um, but my 30, the 32nd version of my story is when I was graduating from college with a computer science degree from the University of Michigan. I turned down a job offer from Microsoft and I started a company. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. And for several years, I was just floundering and trying to figure it out. But I eventually did, like kind of build a product and a business and we started growing, um, started hiring people. And then at the age of 34, I sold my company for a bit over $5 million. Um, after taxes and splitting with the employees and the other owner, I got about $2 million of that in my bank account. And then for two more years, I worked for the company that bought my company. And then after that, I quit my job and I haven't had a job ever since then. And the amount of money in my bank account basically keeps going up because I'm investing it and it just, uh, you know, once you kind of are over the hump, it just keeps uh, snowballing. So you sold your company for $5 million roughly and you're telling me that you didn't buy a yacht right after that? No, I didn't really buy anything <laughs> for about a year. I was still driving a 99 Ford Explorer for I think almost a year after that. Um, I don't know. It was, it was weird because when, um, when you sell a company, you there's this process that goes on where there's kind of like this courting process of meetings and eventually you basically handshake on the deal like and so we basically agree on this five million dollar price and then a few more weeks went on where we were going back and forth with lawyers to like sign the the contract and then there's this period of due diligence which took in my case i think um, about three months so for three months i you know, was a poor person essentially. When I ran my company, I never made more than $36,000 a year. But I knew that, you know, $3 million was coming my way, 1 million of which was gonna get sent straight to the government. Um, but then on, sure enough, on April 1st, 2015, you know, I clicked refresh my bank account and there's millions of dollars in there. But that process of not like knowing it was coming and not having it for months kind of allowed me to have the, constant thought experiment of like what if i bought the yacht what if i bought the fancy car you know and i i guess i kind of got over it in that period like you know like if you bought a yacht then like okay we're gonna keep it and who are you gonna pay to take care of it and what are you gonna do with it on the weekend you know like it just ends up being more of a hassle and so and none of that stuff actually like makes you happier i don't think i think there's like a little endorphin boost you get temporarily from buying stuff like that but then you just go back to right where you were with now a new headache in your life um so no, I didn't buy a yacht. Um, well, and, uh, and that's what you preach. So it's awesome to see like you practicing what you preach. I mean, 
for for a lot of i mean that's a life-changing amount of money and and for you you've you've aligned yourself so well with knowing what brings you real happiness that that's uh just amazing to see um, so how hard was that to turn down that microsoft uh, job opportunity. I do want to get into the mindset behind everything that you're doing, but just to touch on that real quick, I mean, starting right out, right out the gate, a Microsoft job is waiting for you and, and you turned it down. Yeah. Um, and yeah, feel free to, I know that those types of questions are, are a lot more interesting to people than preaching the benefits of a low expense ratio index <laughs> fund. So um, yeah, I was an intern at Microsoft for two summers as a software engineer. Um, and I didn't really love it. I just, you know, it was a great company. And at the time, this was in the years like 2000, 2001 or something, when like Microsoft was the biggest tech company in the world. And actually, they think they still are at this point. Um, but, you know, this was kind of like pre-Google, pre-Facebook. It was like the place to work. And so I was very lucky and fortunate to get, you know, internships there. And then I got a pretty darn good job offer. And But I just didn't really like it. I didn't like only doing one thing all day. They just needed someone to be just a computer programmer. And I thought, you know, I felt like I was like a keyboard and they just wanted me to play one note all day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like I'm a 21 year old punk kid. I don't deserve to like have my full like, you know, suite of abilities appreciated. And I understand from their perspective, they just need their big company. They need people to be, you know, specialists. Um, but yeah, I didn't love it. and I didn't really see like a lot of upside there. It's like if you go work for a company that has 40,000 people, um, for sure, over the course of a career, you can work your way up and, you know, make a lot of money. But, um, you know, if you want to make a ton of money, you kind of have to start a company. And so, um, yeah, when I got that offer, I, you know, I didn't really feel that bad turning it down. Like, they kind of, like, fought for me, which is cool. Like, I don't think they got turned down a lot. A lot um, but Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was probably not, not, not many people would turn that down. But, I mean, in a way, it, it might have been, like you mentioned, a benefit. I mean, obviously, it was in hindsight. but. Um, you know, talk to me about the beginning stages of starting your own business. If you would have accepted that Microsoft job offer and kind of gotten that nice salary right out the gate, do you think that that would have impacted your mindset, your frugality, or maybe had a little bit of lifestyle creep at as a 21, 22 year old? Yeah, it definitely would have. I would have had a different life, you know. Um, I, I think I still would be me on the inside, but you know, I would have moved to Seattle area, probably Redmond where like everyone is wealthy and there's all a bunch of Microsoft employees. And, you know, cause I, I, I kind of lived that life for two summers. And so it's like, you know, I just buy bigger houses and bigger cars. And I, I don't know, it, it felt like kind of like a stale life to me. And if I had lived there, you know, that would have kind of become my life. Would I have been like different than that? I don't know. And sure, there's lots of diverse, amazing people that work for Microsoft and not everyone is just super materialistic or anything, but it definitely is a different kind of bubble over there. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, instead I, I started a company and I had no idea what I was doing. And I think that I would have benefited partially from working for Microsoft just to like, learn more about how the real world works like i had like as a 21 year old starting a company i was like you know had no idea how to build a product or you know do marketing or sell to clients and you know the whole thing and so i, I think like that industry experience could have you know would have helped me more but yeah i don't know if if it would have like negatively impacted my frugality because i basically went from like broke college kid directly into broke entrepreneur and so i like never the lifestyle creep was never an option. Like I did not have money. It's like, not like, Oh, like it's not like a judgment call. If I could, you know, 
have disposable income or whatever. It's like, I just didn't. So for, you know, years until I was like in my thirties, I basically didn't spend money. And, um, and then throughout your building up the business and everything, I know it's such a grind, but, uh, when did you, did you have any thoughts of pursuing financial independence? Was that like a goal that came about years into it or were you just trying to grow the business as much as possible? I think, I mean, I think from my perspective, the whole like financial independence fire movement is relatively recent. You know, I'm 39 now. So I started my company when I was like 18 years ago. And so I assume if you went to like askjeeves.com or whatever the search engine was of the moment and typed in like fire movement, I, I don't think there would have been anything. Um, but it was right during the dot-com boom and then subsequent crash that I was in college. And so certainly the idea of like hitting it big was, was well known to me. And I think there's even some like newspaper articles about me when I was in college that mentioned how I wanted to retire at the age of 25, which I failed at, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wasn't, I was nine years late or something. <clears throat> um, so I, I guess, you know, that idea certainly was, was a, a, like clear to me, but it just wasn't formed like this fire movement is. It was more about just like, starting a company, getting acquired, having that exit, having the big entrepreneurial startup success. Um, and, but I think if I was 20 today, I think the fire movement is kind of more in line with my mentality of, you know, I'm also a big fan of entrepreneurship, but I think anyone can basically become financially independent if they just follow the two rules of personal finance club, which I always talk about, which is spend less money than you make and invest the difference. Yeah. And, and that's what I love about uh, your uh, Instagram account is that you make it very achievable or very um, doable for the average person. You don't have to hit it big. You can kind of just follow your principles, the principles that are out there as well, but you just seem to highlight them so well with your posts. Um, so if we can, can we go over from the beginning, maybe the habits of what you think would be best? You mentioned live below your means. Um, but can you kind of elaborate on that as far as between frugality and earning more? How do you balance that out? Sure. And so the two rules I always go back to, and, and I think your point about simplicity is, is a good one because when people are new to the world of money or investing or finance, it's like a very, it's, I, I just picture like walking to this, like, you know, being like a little kid and walking to like a party with like a million different people and you're like, ah, like it's overwhelming and you don't know who's who or whatever. And, and like in this world of, of investing in personal finance, there's like Bitcoin and day trading and hedge funds and, and mutual funds and, and IRAs and 401ks. And it's like, you're like, what do I do here? You know? And, and all that stuff can just be like wiped away. If you just like really get down to the core, which is spend less than you make, and invest the difference. And even if you don't perfectly invest the difference, um, you know, I actually obviously have very, very strong opinions on what optimal investing looks like. But even if you don't do my optimal version, if you do those two things, then you'll be rich, right? And if you don't do those two things, then you'll be poor. If you spend every dollar you make and never invest, doesn't matter how much you make, you'll still be broke. And so, um, so I always come back to those two things. And yeah, the habits I talk to kind of go to the first part, which is spend less than you make, which is frugality. That's like, basically the first one you have to like live below your means, which means if you, you know, spend every dollar you make, um, you will always be broke. Um, another cool thing about frugality is when you don't spend a dollar, it's 
as good as earning like a dollar thirty or a dollar forty because the dollars you earn are taxed. And so when you earn a dollar forty, you are left with a dollar. And if you don't spend a dollar, you get the entire dollar, right? So like limiting your spending is actually this more powerful tool than even you know wealth builder than even income increase, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then the other side of that coin. So when you're talking about extending this gap between what you spend and what you make. The other side of that gap is increasing what you make. And so sometimes I'll hear questions from people who are like, hey, I make $18,000 a year. Um, you know, what do I do to become rich? And I say, you know, $18,000 a year in the US, you basically have to make more money. You know, there's just, uh, I can't sit here and like wag my finger at you and say to spend less because, you know, at some point you just can't squeeze more water from the rock, right? So, um, and that might be, take, the form of you know I, I always like to think about five years in advance like where do you want to be it's kind of like a corny interview question like where do you see yourself in five years but the thing is like to you know to really increase your income you can't just like snap your fingers and make it happen you have to like take a little bit of a longer term view and say okay if I want to be making 50 grand or 80 grand or 100 grand in a year or in five years what do I have to be doing today and so if I'm working retail at a mall or something like that you know it probably doesn't include just working really hard and becoming an assistant manager in five years, it probably includes getting an education or changing lines of work or like, you know, you know, there are great careers that pay 80 grand out of the shoot with like two year degrees. And so it's like, okay, maybe I'm gonna go get a two year degree and like being an x-ray tech because that's in high demand in my area right now. And then two years, I get a good job making 65 grand. And then three more years, I've worked my way up and worked some overtime, now I'm making 80 grand now that your future is like dramatically different. So basically those habits are like two things, spend less than you make and increase how much you make to increase that gap that you can then invest to become financially independent. Yep, and, and I agree and I, I love that you highlighted a lot of that because uh, it does depend on the situation. If, if you're making X amount of dollars, you, you said for example, 18,000, it's tough to implement more frugality um, it's really better for you to probably focus on the increased spending. I mean, uh, increased uh, income. income. Yeah. So, yeah, and uh, you know that that gap that you're talking about is is super important to to widen. So I'm glad you mentioned it, and you talked about optimizing your investments as well, kind of making it as simple as possible. What can what's that exactly look like? What would you say would be the first few steps to optimizing your investment? Your so investments? again, broad strokes, simple, mm -hmm. invest early and often. And when I say often, sometimes people get caught up like is every week often enough? Should it be every day? What I really mean is just on a regular consistent basis. Um, and so if you just invest once and then never again, that is not good. You know, it should be you know, like monthly or every paycheck is good. So investing early and often is the way to do it. How you do that is what, what I call buy and hold index funds. An index fund is just a simple way to basically buy every single stock in a big list that follows a market. So you could buy a total U.S. stock market index fund. And then that by buying that, you are guaranteeing your fair share of all market growth of the whole U.S. stock market. I personally believe that you should also buy an international stock market index fund and a bond index fund. So they call that the three fund portfolio. And if you buy just those three things, you put money into them every month and hold them for decades, you are going to build fabulous wealth, be financially independent, the whole thing. Um, 
They also can be wrapped into one specific type of investment called a target date index fund, which puts a US index fund, international index fund, and bond index fund into one convenient package. So you can just buy one thing instead of three. It offers another benefit of rebalancing those three things so that they're always in the right proportion and reallocating those three things. So as you get closer to retirement, you are shifting more towards income producing bonds as opposed to more volatile um, stocks. Um, so yeah, that's what you should do. And then in terms of the steps, you basically just work through this, these phases, as I call them, to optimize your wealth and tax, you know, tax benefit. And so the first one is actually, um, and on my homepage now, I've actually, I'm changing it a little bit, um, but the idea is basically the same. But the first one is actually invest in your 401k up to your match. And so if you are in the US and you have a 401k and you have an employer and they match the money, um, match some amount of your income, then that's basically free money that you get if you just put money in and you're basically flushing money down the drain. Like I think of it as an instant 100% return on your investment. Mm -hmm. You know, the market returns about 10% per year on average over long periods of time, but a 401k match returns 100% instantly. And so basically you, you just have to do it before anything else, even if you have debt, even if you have whatever, because there's no better investment than getting an instant doubling of your money. So that's the first step. Um, do you have a 401k? <laughs> um, I do, and, and I, I do the, well, I max it out, um, but I, I've completely done the match from the beginning because I've heard that from, the, from some advisors coming out of school, and, and luckily, thank, thank you to them, they, they always counseled me to live below my means and start with at least a 401k match. So at least coming out of the gate, that's what I knew. Um, then shortly after I started learning a little bit more and um, I've got a similar uh, investment priority list as well. I think the only difference yours is match up to 401k match, HSA up to the max, then a Roth IRA, max that out, then go ahead and max out the 401k or 403b and then go ahead and throw more money into your taxable brokerage. So that's a fantastic investment order. I mean, I think that basically leaves you with as paying as little amount of tax as possible um, in the end of the, at the end of the year. So, um, yeah. yeah did you say yours is different? Mine is slightly different, but I'm starting to kind of go your way here with mine. The only one that I switched up was Roth IRA before the HSA. Um, the only reason for that was because I control my Roth IRA. I know where I can, I can open my brokerage or my Roth IRA with whoever. Um, but with my HSA, it's kind of dictated to the company that I have. And they have switched it up on me a couple of times, which I didn't like. I've had to sell my investments in order to transfer it. I've been out of the market. Yeah. So uh, that's just maybe more no, of a that's, personal. That's extremely reasonable. And HSA is, is an account that most people don't even have access to because it's not compatible with their health insurance plan. And so, you know, like... By the book, the HSA actually has the best tax advantage because mm -hmm. it's tax-free money going in, it's tax-free tax -free growth, and it's tax-free spending on medical expenses, which you know often come up in a person's life. And so you kind of get this triple tax benefit, which is why it's you know on paper better than the Roth IRA. But like when I when I make that list, I always say just skip steps that don't apply to you. So if you don't have a 401k, you'd skip the 401k step, etc. Um, and so for the HSA, I think what you just said is perfectly reasonable. And if, if you have an HSA that doesn't allow investing, for example, or the fees are so incredibly high, it makes it not worth it. 
or whatever, then yeah, you'd, you'd skip that step or, or prioritize it lower. So I think that's a very reasonable choice you made. Yeah, and uh, I am taking advantage of saving the receipts. So that's something big that I learned from the mad scientist actually, which is just save your receipts and then don't use that, don't, don't get that reimbursement right away. Let that money uh, stay invested, grow, and then you can take it out whenever you'd like. Nice, that's an advanced tip. Yeah, that, that's um, mad, mad scientist. We gotta credit that to him. Um, but the other thing that I wanted to sneak into is a 457 plan. Um, that's something that I've been offered and I try to take advantage of that as well. So if that's available to you, I think it's a great choice as well. If it's a governmental 457 plan, you. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, there's a lot of employer sponsored retirement plans. I kind of use a 401k as, as a shorthand to describe all of them. And mm -hmm. I think people usually know which one they have. And so 403B is one, 457 is one, TSP is one if you're in the military, work for the government. And they all kind of have a lot of similarities in common, which is employer sponsored. You have to choose from their, you know, their, their um, like brokerage vendors or their investment options. And I think 457, it's one of the less common ones, but actually one of the cooler ones because it actually allows um, withdrawals before retirement age in a yes. way that a 401k doesn't without, you know, jumping through some hoops or penalty or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, for sure, if you have a 457, but, but I think they all have in common, which is you can't double up. You couldn't like put 19,500, which is the limit into a 401k. And then another 19,500 and a 457, like the, the IRS caps your contribution at 19,500 for all tax deductions uh, in, in retirement accounts. And so you kind of just like pick your horse and go with it. So actually, I, I believe, Jeremy, that you can do uh, the max 19,500 in 401k or 403b and 19 into your 457b. At really? Least. And yeah, then that, you get a tax deduction on both? You get a tax deduction on both because it's the 457 is technically deferred compensation. Um, and yeah, you get that tax deduction because you were never really paid out. You'll be taxed on it whenever you take the the distribution. I mean, that's how that's how 401ks and 403bs work too. I'd be surprised if that's true. I'm not a CPA. I'm just a serious <laughs> hobbyist. And so I could 100% be wrong in this, but I've never heard about being able to get a penny more than that 19,005. Um, but if I'm that's gonna, true. Yeah, yeah I'm going to double check it again. Edit, I mean, edit, I believe it's edit the answer into the podcast after we're done. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's how I feel like I've been maxing out and uh, getting up to 38 thousand or really? so tax-free which that's a huge benefit oh man the um, irs is coming after you <laughs> so yeah so now we've gotten through the habits the plan which i love you have uh the plan of saving uh one month's worth of expenses contributing to the 401k match and and uh, then aggressively paying down debt except for mortgage saving full emergency fund three to six months you call it not poor insurance which is a good term for it yeah. And, um, and then just continue to invest. Um, similar, it's very similar to Dave Ramsey's approach as well. Do you, would you say that's true? Yeah. I mean, there's no denying that <laughs> it's pretty darn similar. And like, just because, you know, I, I don't, you know, and there's other financial gurus out there that have similar lists. It's just because it's right. You know, you know, I would, you know, you wouldn't suggest, you know, doing something more radical or crazy. And so, I mean, I, and I, I like Dave Ramsey. I, I think we disagree on some of his investing ideas. I think he basically suggests um, investing in high fee, high load 
actively managed mutual funds a lot, although I think he's coming around to index funds more. Um, it's kind of the math and, and science and studies behind them is undeniable. Um, but, you know, I don't know of a better way to get out of debt than, than Dave Ramsey's system. I'm, I'm kind of on board with the snowball method, which is sorting all your debts from smallest to largest, which a lot of, I'm a math guy, I'm a left brain guy, I'm an analytical guy, but I think people who are in debt aren't in debt because they can't figure out which debt has the highest uh, um, interest rate. They're in debt because of behavioral things. You know, they're just used to the debt. They think it's normal. They, they used to, used to making payments. They want the next thing. They, they overspend, you know, what, and, and for sure, sometimes there are like, you know, medical debt or, you know, unavoidable circumstances, but to get out, I think it's also a, a mental or behavioral thing, which is attack the smallest debt first and feel that like real forward progress, that emotional win of getting one debt out of your life, taking that payment you were making towards that debt, plus all the extra payments you were throwing at it, and then taking all that and rolling over to the second smallest debt. I feel like that is a much more effective way to like men mentality-wise get out of debt rather than just hacking at the biggest debt with like a little little tiny chisel and, and never feel like you're getting anywhere. Yeah, yeah, the behavioral side of, of personal finance is huge. And, and yeah, it's not mathematically correct all the time, but what matters is whatever motivates you and keeps you going. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and I, I like that when you apply it to investment side as well, because uh, with J.L. Collins, for example, when uh, I spoke with him, he mentioned BTSAX a lot. That's his bread and butter. And that's great. A lot of people also recommend a little bit of international and he doesn't feel the same way. And then they, you've got target date funds. And I think at the end, as long as you're doing something along those lines and keeping your fees low, getting broad exposure, uh, I wouldn't want people to confuse themselves on which one exactly is the best choice. Just pick one. Would you agree with that? I 100% agree. And I think that goes right to the, the idea of you know, keeping it simple, which is people get so confused on like the nuances, like, okay, like how much international or like, should I do a three fund or a target date or all in VT Sachs? And all those things are like little fine tunings in the realm of like extremely good. And I always say, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And so if you say, I don't know if I should do a three fund portfolio or all in VT Sachs, so I'm just going to spend all my money and get into debt. Like, that's not the correct answer. Just, just pick one. You know? Like if, if 30 years from now you did all in VT Sachs and I have done targeted index funds and we like meet on our yachts and say, well, we both invest a lot of money and both made a lot of money, then, you know, I think we'll both be fine. So um, yeah, I hundred percent agree. You know, and, and I think within that realm of just picking one, it's important to stay the course. Um, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I, I, I basically never make trades. I just buy and hold. And the only thing I do is when I have new money, I just contribute it to the exact same funds I already own. I never make change, trades, I never make changes. And that's not to say I got it 100% perfect, you know, five years ago or whatever when I, when I had my windfall. I, I just think it's more important to stay the course because if you don't, then jumping between different strategies, I think is more likely to uh, introduce human error. And so if you, for example, read this really convincing blog article on how small cap value stocks have outperformed the market over the course of the last 30 years, and then you say, okay, I'm going all on small cap value. That small cap value has a really bad five years just because the internet or the market is random. 
you say, oh, I screwed up. That was a stupid blog article. You're like, no, the new thing is international. That's what's the next hot thing. You move into all international and then that does bad. And I think that type of switching strategies is so much worse because if you just stuck with small cap value, if that was your strategy for another 20 years, it would have come back and maybe outperformed over long periods of time. But the switching, jumping back and forth is where you're more likely to burn yourself than help yourself. Right, right. And uh, I hope we can realize that one day, Jeremy. I hope you're on your yacht and I'm on my yacht and we're comparing the difference between <laughs> BTSAX or a target date fund. That'd be great. Oh, yeah, I would love to. Although mine's probably going to be a rental because yachts are a gigantic <laughs> waste of money. But I'll rent one for the week. I'll meet you in a, on the coast of Croatia or something. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> um, and and getting back to the investment style, you you, talk, you had a post that resonated with me. It's invest like a robot. And I think that's the perfect way to, to put it is no matter what you see in the market, just continue. If you can make it automatic, like you mentioned, it'll, it'll be even better because you're not even paying attention to it. You don't have time to analyze whether it's a right decision or not, or if it's a good time or a bad time. Yeah. I'm glad that you like that post. Cause I think that's like, it's like one of the most important posts and it doesn't, you know, the Instagram crowd is very fickle and that one didn't do very well. People kind of want the more like shocking, like, Oh, become a millionaire. If you just put in 200 bucks a month, like, wow. Um, but yeah, that's like, you know, that's really gets at the core of, of what, like optimal investing is, which is not doing anything actively and just being emotionless and sticking to it. And, and yeah, if you, like you said, if you can automate it even better, just like have it come out of your paycheck, have it auto contribute to your, to your fund or funds that you're in and, and forget about for years at a time. Um, there's this uh, great study that I've read about, which I, I'm not sure if it's true or not. I feel like it might be one of those urban legends. It's either true and Fidelity wanted to suppress it or it's not true and just was made up. But basically, the story goes like this. Fidelity did a study on the demographics of their investors because they wanted to figure out um, you know, what types of investors are most successful. Is it based on education or gender or location or background or occupation um, to see like what kind of trends they can identify within all of their world of investors. And you know, within Fidelity, if you don't know, is I think the biggest brokerage in the world and they manage or they, you know, are the management company for you know billions or trillions of dollars. And so they have this massive mm -hmm. amount of data. And they basically found that the best demographics, the best performing types of investors was a tie between two different types of investors. The first was dead people, and the second was people who forgot they had an account. <laughs> Literally people that just never touched it did better than the sum total of everyone else who was trying to do stuff, right? And so that's what it you know, goes down to. You know, don't forget you have an account, don't forget you have an account <laughs> because you want to like, put more money in on a regular basis. That's the, really, that's the key. Um, but I think that whether it's true or not, I think it, it teaches a good lesson, which is, you know, less is more in investing. Just let it do its work because you're not going to outsmart the market. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's, that's shocking. That's, that's crazy. I hope that study is real. And if I find it, I'm going to try and put that in the show notes because that, I mean, that, yeah. I've heard of it too. And it's, it's shocking. It's, it really is. Um, but I mean, I think Fidelity, you know, they're a business and they make money with people making decisions, right? So if everybody bought their 0% their expense ratio index fund and nobody did anything different, you know, they wouldn't really have much of a business left after that. And so mm -hmm. I don't, you know, if it is true, I don't think that they're, I don't think you're going to find it on their website. I think that was like an internal <laughs> memo or something that got leaked that like, you know, but yeah, if you, if you find it, let me know. Yeah. And um, it reminds me of those old commercials that 
say, uh, you know, for the toaster oven or something that say set it and forget it. It's kind of similar. If you get it right in the beginning and you set it up with low cost index funds, you can really forget about it. You don't want to forget about it if you're paying high cost though. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's like a couple, like you take a couple hours to learn about how to buy a low fee index fund at the beginning of your investing career, set up auto contributions and forget it. Yeah. But that set it and forget it guy, that infomercial guy, like he really ruined that phrase because it's just like so corny, but like, yeah. I really want to, I want to like recapture that phrase and repurpose it for investing. Cause it really is perfect, perfect for investing. But whenever I think about, it, I just, yeah, I see him selling his stupid toaster oven or whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, I can't use that. And um, to highlight the set it and forget it mentality, I believe you have a investment, um, like a market timing game on your website, which I actually went to it and tried to play around with it and see how I would do trying to time the market. And how'd you do? It was awful. Oh no. <laughs> it was awful. It doesn't make any sense at all. Every time I want to buy, it goes, you know, down or up. And, and I'm just conf all sorts of confused. And in the end, I, I lost basically 2% of my money. <laughs> yeah, annually. Yeah, so, so I, I think especially right now, I mean, every, every year it seems like people want to time the market. It's probably the question I get the most, which is like, is this a good time to get in? Should I get out right now? What's going to happen next? And the answer is the sum total of human knowledge is constantly being baked into every stock in the market and thus the entire price of the market. And so if you ask your uncle at Thanksgiving, if the market's going to go down, he's probably going to tell you something, but like all respect to your uncle, like he's full of shit. Like he just doesn't know, right? <laughs> he has no idea because, because the sum total of human knowledge is already baked into the expectation of the market going forward. So if he tells you his expectation is different from that, he's just speaking from a, a perspective of having a limited amount of information because we all have a limited amount of information, but the market has a sum total of human in, you know, information baked into it. And so an example is in Mar you know, in, in February of this year, the market was pretty high and everyone was like, should I get out of the market? And I said, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. So my answer is always going to be buy and hold, invest early and often, set it and forget it. Um, and, and people heard about the coronavirus thing and like, everyone was basically like, this is no big deal. We've had swine flus. We've had Ebola's. We've had, um, you know, every, every year there's, uh, you know, a, a pandemic, you know, bird flu, a pandemic that's named after a, an animal or something. And every year it kind of seems at China and it's not that big of a deal. And so, so, so through the first few months of coronavirus news, the market was unaffected. And then like over the course of the week, it basically became apparent to the world that, or to the, the U.S. at least, that like this one's going to hit us hard. And the market just plummeted because the expectation of all that historical information of pandemics had changed. And so if you were telling me, you know, I'm sure some people will claim to in January, they knew this was gonna be the big one. Like, yeah, I'm sure like, but they might have known 12 times before and they were wrong 11 out of 12 times, right? Yeah. I think there's a funny saying that, you know, the experts have called, you know, 14 of the last three recessions correctly, which is like, yeah, they, they keep calling them. And then every once in a while, they're right. They're like, see, I'm like, well, yeah, you called, <laughs> you called nine that didn't happen. And so I can't trust a word you're saying, right? Yeah. Um, and so then, then the market tanked. And then in, you know, at the end of March, we were down 30% and people, people were like, you know, 
restaurants are closing, the world's ending, you know, this, you know, I'm definitely getting out now. Now, now I know that the market's going down further. And, and I said, and then they asked me like, should I, should I get out now? I said, I don't know. I've done tell you the same thing, buy and hold. And then sure enough, like there was like rumors of a vaccine or, um, you know, China actually started getting better and, and they're like, okay, this isn't going to end the world. It's just going to put things off for a few months. And then the market, like, you know, we had Literally, I think the second quarter was the best quarter in the history of the S&P 500 because it was up yeah. like 30% because it basically bounced back up. I think we're about where we were. And it's actually crazy right now. The market today is like higher than where it was a year ago. So in the middle of 2019, where people were all saying, it's epically high, you know, it's, it's due for a crash. Like we're actually higher than that now, but people are like, oh, we're getting beat down. From, you know, so it's all just this like rumor that you can never actually beat. And so... Your uncle's wrong, you're wrong, everyone's wrong, <laughs> the experts are wrong, everyone's wrong. The only thing that's right is the market, which has a sum total of knowledge price in, and you don't know what's gonna happen, except for, I agree with JL Collins, it's gonna go up over long periods of time because constantly baked into the price of those shares are innovation and population growth and revenue and profits and improvements and all that stuff is, as those companies are profiting and growing and building and innovating and expanding, all that profit is constantly being baked back into those price and dividends of the market. And you want to be holding that as long as possible. That's an ex excellent explanation of what went down over the last few months. Right now we're recording, it's July. And like you mentioned, the stock market is higher. Um, nobody knows why necessarily. Earnings are horrible. Uh, a lot of people are unemployed, unfortunately. And the market is still just doing whatever it wants to do. Um, so that is the conclusion is I think JL Collins mentioned it. Don't question why the market is doing what it's doing. It's like asking why is there a hurricane or a blizzard uh, happening? It's just, that's just, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. You just it, want and it doesn't. That's true. Um, so that's a fantastic explanation. And um, you know, I think what's most important is just focusing on the fees and, uh, and on the, consistent investment style that you have a couple last things just to wrap up i think would be important to mention is the four percent rule i didn't get a chance to explain that um but are you living by the four percent rule how are you withdrawing if you are even withdrawing at this point since you're financially independent yeah so for listeners who don't know the four percent rule is what's called the safe withdrawal rate there is a famous study called the trinity study which basically looked at the historical volatility of the market and said, okay, if you have a certain amount of money invested, how much can you take out every single year, even accounting for inflation as time goes on, and basically be pretty confident it's not gonna go to zero. And so the market goes up about 10% per year on average, but you can't take out 10% of the starting amount every year, because if you have a five year bad phase of the market, and then you're taking out 10% of the initial, you know, amount every year, you could basically go to zero and then that, and that, that money would never, you know, your remaining nest egg would not be big enough over a long enough time to recover. And so, you know, 1% is just too low because, you know, that's not even inflation and, you know, the market goes up so much that's way less. And so basically they, you know, 10% is too high. And so basically they looked at this and said, okay, the number is 4%. And so, and I think it's actually 4% is the indefinite number and 4.5% is like the, if you're like, 50 years old or something like that, you know, if you only need 30 more years of the money or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, for me, when I, you know, I kind of use that as like a heuristic, a, a rule of thumb 
and you know when I quit my job, I think I had about three million in the bank or so, and so um, four percent of that is one hundred and twenty thousand dollars per year, which is like more than double the most I've ever spent in like the <laughs> most lavish living year of my life. Um, and so I was like, okay, like I can live on the two percent rule. Um, and you know now my net worth is a little higher. I think after the coronavirus crash and this terrible financial decision of the condo you see behind me. I guess the listeners don't, but, uh, but you it do. looks it looks beautiful. It looks nice. You got a nice setup Thanks. there. <laughs> but it costs a lot of money. It was a gigantic waste of money. But anyway, my uh, now my net worth is at like three point five million. So yeah, the number keeps going up, even though I'm spending every year. And so um, yeah, and when people ask like, do I just withdraw money? Yeah, I do. I don't have an income, so I basically I'm taking money out, but. Um, I do have this, like some real estate investments that provide some income. So, you know, I take that first, I take dividends and then I'm not, I'm not like selling necessarily exactly 2% every year. I just, um, you know, just kind of do what makes sense based on the moment. And actually yesterday, it's today is July 16th, right? Yesterday was the delayed tax day of coronavirus 2020. And I sent a check to the state of California and federal governments for about $206,000 and so, um, to, and that was to cover my tax bill for selling a bunch of stock to buy this house, um, which is why my net worth has gone down. Ouch. Uh, oh my okay. God. Yeah. I think that's got to be the most I've, I've heard a tax bill be. That's, that's, that hurts. Yeah. It was only my second worst tax year. My first year tax year was in 2015, where I literally sent the government $1 million. It, oh. was, it was like, I, I think, you know, some of it was California, some of it was state, but I think I, I literally wrote a, I hand wrote a check for like $650,000 or something like that. I sent to the government. It's crazy. Like, you know, I was a broke person before this, but it turns out you can write checks for any amount of money and it can just be in, there's no maximum that can be in a checking account. You can put a million dollars in a checking account and write a check for $600,000 and they, they just do the math and take it out. It just works like any other check. Just a couple numbers plugging in the computer and digitally that's a million dollars right there in your checking account. And it's and uh, yeah, it's, it's scary. That's crazy. Um, well, Jeremy, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, is there anything that you wanted or, you know, you're interested in or you're excited about and, you know, have coming up in the near future that you want to share? Um, yeah, I mean, you can always check out my Instagram, which you know about. And I just released a new personal finance club community at my website, personalfinanceclub.com. It's already doing really great. Tons of people are in there answering and asking questions. It's just a space for what I call champions of the individual investor to share knowledge, to like answer questions. And so, um, and I think it's really great for people to have somewhere to go to ask questions about the Roth IRA. Cause I think it's like a big group of people, like most people who paying a very high fee to a financial expert um, just isn't worth it. Because if you have 2000 bucks to invest and you spend 500 bucks on professional services, you've lost 25% of your money. You know, I mean, the education yeah. might be worth it and stuff over long periods of time, but you know, just a place where people can go and share good altruistic knowledge. So yeah, check it out, personalfinanceclub.com. All right, I'll link that in the show notes as well for the audience. And I think what you're doing is amazing. You're building a community, you're giving solid uh, suggestions. Just want to clarify for, you know, the disclaimer, it's not financial advice, but it's pretty solid life advice if you want to take that into consideration um, from someone who's already reached financial independence. So that's amazing. Um, thank you, Jeremy, once again, and, and I hope to see you on, back on the show soon. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Great show. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. So I hope this episode was as useful to you as it was for me. If you would like to help the show, here's how you can do it. First, 
Subscribe and leave a review on any platform where you listen to the show. This will also enter you into our giveaway where I announce a winner each episode. Second, share this podcast with a friend. Lastly, you can help me continue to bring you amazing content by becoming a supporter of the show. There'll be a link in the show notes below. That link takes you to anchor.fm forward slash inspire to fire forward slash support. And even a small contribution helps. As a thank you, I'll send you all my fire resources and give you a shout out on the next episode. Until next time, thank you for listening and have a great day.